Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. I've saved one of the most sinister crimes of the century for this, our season one finale. When one of his clients asked him to travel some 140 miles, lawyer William W. Vaughn got worried. He pulled his wife aside and said, hey, if anything happens to me, I've socked away some important documents that will help lead you to my killer. His wife, born Rosabelle Claudel, the daughter of a well-off merchant, must have been terrified, but if she lodged any objection to her husband's travels, he didn't heed them. The father of 10 boarded a train from Pahuska, Oklahoma, to Oklahoma City, where his client wasted away in a hospital. The meeting with that client, a man named George Bigheart, went surprisingly well, considering George was dying. He'd been poisoned, and he was certain he knew who was to blame. George handed over yet more documents to his lawyer, ones damning enough that Vaughn called the sheriff back home and said, I've got enough here to nail at least one of these murderous bastards. Then he boarded the train back home. He never arrived. The next morning, George Bigheart succumbed to the poison coursing through his body. It would be 24 more hours before a search party would discover his lawyer's body near the railroad tracks. Vaughn had been viciously beaten, stripped naked, and tossed from the train. The documents George had given him had vanished. Rosa, Vaughn's wife, at least took heart that her husband had shared with her the location of other important documents, so she went to retrieve them. They, too, had disappeared. The June 1923 murders of Big Heart and Vaughn weren't the first victims tied to the Osage Nation of Oklahoma. In fact, the two men brought the body count to at least 24, though some historians think the tally could actually be measured in scores, if not hundreds. Today, that era in the Osage Nation is known as the Reign of Terror, and it's unraveling, revealing a horrifying conspiracy in which white people aimed to steal money from nation members not only changed federal laws, but it helped birth the Federal Bureau of Investigations. It's hard to know for sure who the first victim was in this gruesome tale because so many of the deaths were explained away as accidents. The first one that got any attention was in 1921, but it seems likely that the murders began years earlier. The backstory goes like this. As the 19th century drew to a close, the Osage Nation, a Midwestern Native American tribe dating back to 700 B.C., was tired of being pushed around by settlers forced to leave one chunk of land after another. They'd most recently been run out of Kansas, uprooted because the federal government decided it wanted to make Kansas a state. Finally, they settled in rough terrain that would later become Oklahoma. They actually chose this land and bought it themselves so they were the rightful deed owners, 
because it was such rocky, inhospitable land that they knew white men wouldn't want to farm on it, and thus they'd be left alone. But then something happened. At the turn of the century, the Osage Nation struck oil on their reservation land. This is from the Oklahoma Historical Society. Though the process began slowly, production began to boom in 1907, when the Osage oil fields produced over 5 million barrels. The tribe was able to retain collective ownership of the surface mineral rights. So the useless land that the Osage had bought was actually sitting atop an ocean of black liquid gold. In fact, said author David Gran, This land turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil then in the United States. The federal government might well have relocated them again had this land been allocated to them through a treaty, but it hadn't been. The nation had bought the property, all million and a half acres of it. Already, that made the Osage stand out. They were the only Native American nation that had paid for their land. They have a title to it. Garrick Bailey, professor of anthropology at Tulsa University. The funds that were not used to purchase the reservation went into a, uh, a trust fund for the tribe. And if you took the trust fund and divided it equally among all Osage, the Osage were the richest people in the world. That's 1893, four years before oil has ever struck Predictably, and this is still before anyone had any real clue about the oil beneath the surface, the federal government tried to pressure the Osage again. They wanted to make the territory a state. Former Osage chief Jim Rowan Gray. And in order for the state to exist, they had to break up the land holdings of the, uh, of the tribes. They wanted the land allotted, as in individuals had to own chunks of land. The Osage overall couldn't just have this million-and-a-half-acre chunk. The Osage weren't keen on being pressured, though, because they'd bought this land themselves. They ended up striking an agreement. We'll allot the surface rights, but we're going to retain the mineral rights, meaning the Osage would still own everything beneath the surface of the land. This was the sole such agreement with any Native American nation in the country and it happened only because the Osage had bought their land outright. The agreement with lawmakers said the head rights could never be sold. They could only be inherited. So the federal government settled the agreement with the Osage, and Oklahoma eventually became a state in 1907. And then came the oil. At first, the profits were in the $100 range, and then the $1,000 range, and then tens of thousands. By the time 1923 came around, the Osage people split $30 million, which translates to more than $400 million in today's money. At this point, there were about 2,000 Osage, and that money was split evenly among them. It'd been a prosperous nation before. Now, it was obscenely rich. They were considered the wealthiest people per capita then in the world, and reporters, often with a great deal of prejudice um, and sensationalism would head out to Osage territory and kind of regale the readers with these stories about the quote-unquote plutocratic Osage and the quote-unquote red millionaires with their terracotta mansions and their cars. It was said at the time, whereas one American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. Shocker, some people got jealous. This is Jennifer Penland, an indigenous scholar and professor at Shepherd University. They were criticized because People were jealous that they had all this money, and who were they to spend it? They couldn't speak English. They weren't white. 
They didn't deserve it. And yeah, they made a mockery of their wealth. The federal government decided that the Osage couldn't possibly know how to manage this vast wealth, never mind that they had been smart enough to buy their own land and prosper even before the oil was struck. The Osage people were seen by the European settlers as subhuman, childlike. It went so far that members of the U.S. Congress passed this legislation requiring that many Osage have these white guardians, these businessmen, these bankers, these politicians, to manage their fortunes. And this system was not abstractly racist. It was literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed, quote-unquote, incompetent, and you were given one of these guardians. It was for their own good, see? Sort of like Britney's conservatorship. Jim Rowan Gray again. The guardianships of the day were in such a pernicious way that the Osages never really understood how much money they had, things that they bought that they didn't know. If you're wondering how it could possibly be legal to pass a law like this, so did journalist David Gran, who wrote a phenomenal book called Killers of the Flower Moon. For me, it was eye-opening to go back and, and dig up the debates that these members of Congress would have. And you really get a sense, we're not talking that long ago, you're talking about the 1920s, you really get a level and the breadth prejudice uh, that existed at that time. Okay, so you have a setup in which the Osage are getting a ton of money from oil, but white men are assigned to oversee that money. The Osage couldn't sell their head rights, but they could bequeath them in death. And wouldn't you know it, it wasn't long at all before the Osage people began dropping dead left and right. Grand, speaking to various crowds and reporters during his book tour, described sifting through old records and logbooks during his research. I would often see, for example, five Osage whose wealth they had managed. If the Osage had died, somebody, some bureaucrat, had just written the word dead next to their name. And I noticed in one case there was an Osage, and it had the word dead. The next Osage, dead, 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 all five. And then I looked at another guardian, and I saw they had about 12 Osage whose fortunes they'd overseen. 50% of them were dead. This defied any national death rate. The guardians, which, by the way, was pronounced guardian locally, according to This Land Press, but I'm not local, so I'll stick with guardian, were tasked with giving the Osage their royalty checks each quarter and advising them on how to spend it wisely. Guardians were only required to dole out $1,000 a quarter, even when headright earnings were three times that. It was up to the guardians to keep track of the rest, and wouldn't you know it, a lot of times it would just disappear. Not only that, but some guardians were assigned multiple Osage, sometimes three, four, five people. You just heard Grand mention one who had 12. Now, these guardians weren't in line to inherit headrights. Family members would. So if an Osage member died, that head right would be left to the next of kin, like their children or siblings. That's how a woman named Anna Brown got to be so wealthy. Anna was 36 years old. She'd been one of four daughters born to Jimmy Nakaseo and Lizzie Q. Kyle. Jimmy died around 1895, leaving his wife his head right. His daughters, Minnie, Molly, and Rita, in addition to Anna, each grew up and eventually married. In 1918, Minnie, who was married to a man named William Smith, fell ill. It was a strange ailment, one that seemed to just sap her energy and strength. She was simply wasting away. 
Despite the family's money for good doctors, no one could pinpoint what was wrong with her, and she died. Her husband was by no means a model spouse. He was said to be violent toward her on occasion, but it also seemed that he was genuinely grief-stricken. He had become part of her family, so much so that when he remarried, it was to Minnie's sister, Rita. Anna, who had married a white man named Oda Brown, was determined to have a good time. Come 1921, she had divorced her husband and was known to date other men and party pretty hard. From a documentary. Anna Brown was a kind-hearted, free spirit who loved to dress up in the latest flapper fashions, dance, and have a good time. She enjoyed the boomtown nightlife of Fairfax, Whizbang, and Paul Huska. She was the type of gal who kept whiskey in a flask and offered it around despite prohibition having begun the year prior. Honestly, we'd have probably hung out. On May 21st, 1921, Anna had gone to her sister Molly's house for a little gathering and ticked a bunch of people off by showing up drunk. Molly was married to a white man named Ernest Burkhart. Ernest had come to Osage County to live with his uncle, a cattleman named William K. Hale. It was through working for his uncle that he had met Molly, who fell in love with him, much to the chagrin of some of Ernest's racist relatives. The two were married in 1917. Ernest was at Molly's party, as was his brother Brian. Brian had on occasion dated Anna, and on this evening, Anna was full force flirting with him. At the end of the night, Brian offered to give Anna a ride home, which she accepted. Molly, who'd been pissed about the bad party behavior, still helped Anna sober up and even washed her clothes before sending her on her way. She never saw her sister again. When Anna Brown left her sister Molly's house and didn't turn up the next day, or the day after, her family got worried. It wouldn't have been unheard of for Anna to go on a bender, but about a week before Anna was last seen, another man named Charles Whitehorn had disappeared. He was well-known in the community, liked by both white men and his Osage people, and he was one of Anna's cousins. Searches for both missing people got underway, but turned up nothing. Then, on May 27th, an oil worker spotted something in a hillside brush as crews drilled about a mile north of Pahuska. When he got closer, he realized he was looking at a corpse, one with a bullet through its head. The body was too decomposed to identify, but a letter found in the pocket was addressed to Charles Whitehorn. About the same time, some 30 miles away in Fairfax, hunters stumbled across another body. This one was bloated and black, face up in a ravine. Like the other body, it was badly decomposed, but it at least appeared to be a Native American woman. Still, the body was in such rough shape that even people who knew Anna Brown couldn't be sure it was her. Her two surviving sisters, Molly and Rita, came to the ravine, and while the features were too distorted to be sure, they recognized the gold fillings in the corpse's mouth and the clothes it wore. It was Anna. Local authorities at first dismissed the death as accidental alcohol poisoning, but then the undertaker found a bullet hole in the back of her skull. The one murder that that really seemed to touch people was Anna Brown, and and she she was murdered brutally. And uh, 
In her lifetime, she was taking advantage of her. The community mourned. People from all over came by to pay their respects to the family. William Hale, Ernest's uncle and thus relative by marriage, offered his heartfelt condolences. Two months after Anna died, her mother Lizzie died of what appeared to be the same wasting disease that had killed Minnie three years prior. That left just Molly and Rita left in a family that had originally numbered six. But the deaths were far from over. William's stepson was a steer roping champion. Whether he was 29 or 32 depends on which source you trust, but all sources agree that he was handsome and popular and seemed to be in stellar health. His mother-in-law later told investigators that Stepson had spent February 28, 1922, at home until a phone call drew him into town at about 6 p.m. When he returned later that night, a neighbor found him on his porch, seemingly blackout drunk. A couple of men helped Stepson get back into his own house, where his mother-in-law checked on him throughout the night. When she went to rouse him in the morning, he was dead. At first, alcohol poisoning was suspected, but a coroner's inquest didn't find evidence of booze in his system. The cause of death was ruled unknown. Bernard McBride, called Barney by most, was a rich, retired oil operator whom the Osage rightly considered an ally. McBride saw the bodies piling up and was outraged that they weren't being properly investigated. The 60-year-old traveled to Washington, D.C. to talk to lawmakers in hopes of convincing them to take these deaths more seriously. Soon after he left for D.C., a headline ran, Wealthy oil man found slain with 20 wounds and rope around neck. You had a man who went to Washington, D.C. to try to get federal authorities uh, to look into these uh, killings. He went into a boarding house. He received a telegram from an associate in Oklahoma that said, be careful. He left the boarding house that night. He was abducted, uh, and his body was found in a culvert the next day, and he had been stabbed uh, more than 20 times and beaten to death. McBride's murder was a turning point. Not only was this a rich white man, but his death showed how serious and insidious the situation was. Here was a guy whose whereabouts shouldn't have been well known to anyone not close to him, and the timing made it absolutely clear that someone didn't want him talking to federal authorities. His death probably got the Fed's attention better than any speech he gave would have. Still, it wasn't going to be easy for investigators from D.C. to figure out what was happening more than 1,200 miles away in Oklahoma. So even though their attention was peaked, nothing much really happened. Except, of course, for more murders. In January 1923, two more Osage died. Big Annie Sanford and Joe Yellowhorse, both from some kind of poisoning. That same month, Henry Rowan, who's alternately ID'd as Molly's first husband and or her cousin, disappeared. He had supposedly argued with his wife and driven away from his home, never to return. Days later, two men noticed a car in a ravine. When they approached, they saw the body of a man sitting upright behind the wheel. It was Henry Rowan, and he'd been shot through the head with a revolver. Days after that, a middle-of-the-night explosion rocked Osage County. Molly Burkhart had been fast asleep, but the blast jolted her awake. She looks out the window, and in the distance, she can see this orange ball rising in the sky. 
Molly's sister Rita had moved close to Molly's home after the deaths of Anna and Lizzie, their sister and mother. The deaths had terrified her, and she felt safer with Molly near. Now, Molly stared out the window at what used to be Rita's new home. Rita was killed instantly. Osage educator Carl Ponca. When they blew that house up, it just blew stuff all over the city. And there were like arms, legs and stuff, you know, in people's yards. Rita didn't die alone. Also killed was a woman she paid to keep house, Nettie Brookshire. The sad thing is there really wasn't much found of her body, if anything at all. This is from a video by Ready for History. But the undertaker supposedly found enough of her body pieces to charge for a grave and a headstone. But it's another one of those things where they may have taken advantage of the Osage money. Rita's husband, William Smith, was pulled from the rubble alive. If you're thinking, hey, that's the guy who was married to Minnie when she died too, and now he survived a bombing, oh my God, he must be the killer. It's a fair line of thinking, and I respect your cynicism. But Smith was mortally wounded in the explosion. It was clear he'd been just as targeted as his wife, and before he died of his injuries, he was able to identify who he thought was to blame. He stated before he died that he had two enemies, William King Hell and Ernest Burkhart. If you remember, William Hale, sometimes called Bill, was uncle to Ernest, who was married to Rita's sister. Smith said that Hale had gotten him drunk, or mesmerized him, according to one news story, and forced him to sign a check for $8,000. The next day, Smith tried to stop payment, but Hale had managed to cash the check at 11 p.m. the night before. This is Marvin's stepson, grandson of the poisoned William's stepson. I think Bill Hale was a man for all reasons, a man for all seasons. He was a friend to everybody and everybody's enemy. He built houses, he loaned money, he had a big shot in the bank, he was a cattleman, did some ruthless undertakings. He became a fairly wealthy man, a man of respect. Hale had been born and raised in Greenville, Texas, but packed up and moved to Osage County around the turn of the century, lured by the oil and all the opportunity that oil promised. He didn't come from money. His roots were pretty humble, in fact. But he was ambitious and chatty, and he could win over a crowd with jokes and rope tricks. Plus, he was generous. He was known to buy townsfolk brand new suits, like the ones he wore every single day. He visited the sick and elderly and even bought ponies for kids just to cheer them up. In Osage, he got rich. He owned one house in Fairfax and another in the country, plus 5,000 acres of grazing land. He leased another 45,000 from Osage landowners and invested in businesses all over town, a bank, a general store, a funeral home. He eventually had so much wealth and power that he became known as the so-called King of the Osage Hills. Hale had been good friends with Henry Rowan, the man found dead behind the steering wheel in January 1923. And he didn't seem poised to gain anything by these Osage people dying. So Bill Smith's accusations must have perplexed people at first. Then, in October 1923, Hale filed a lawsuit. He said he was owed $25,000 on a life insurance policy he'd taken out on Rowan. He'd made all the payments on the policy and was miffed that Capital Life Insurance and Rowan's estate executor were denying him payment. Suddenly, it became clear that Hale had stood to benefit from Rowan's death. 
Now, he wouldn't benefit directly from the deaths of Rita and Bill Smith, but his nephew would. Molly Burkhart was now the only surviving member of her family, and she'd inherited the headrights of her father, mother, and three sisters. Suspicion was starting to foment, but the Osage had no idea what to do about it. The police were, you know, were bought. The police could not be trusted. This is Tara Damron of White Hair Memorial and Osage Learning Center. So in addition to local law enforcement, you had doctors that were also not trustworthy. You had medical examiners, you had coroners. It went all the way up, you know, to the top. The Osage Tribal Council felt there was no one local they could trust. It seemed that authorities decided it was A-OK for indigenous people to die left and right under mysterious circumstances. The council hoped that maybe they'd have better luck with the federal government. So they tried their luck there. Finally, someone listened. During the Osage Reign of Terror, what we know of today as the Federal Bureau of Investigations was still called the Bureau of Investigations, either the BOI or BI for short. It had been formed in 1908, but was fast evolving. Just as the Osage investigation was getting underway, J. Edgar Hoover was beginning his 48-year career as head honcho there. Now, if you've listened to the show a while, you know the Bureau's genesis was pretty scattershot. It started under a different name as a clearinghouse to try and track down known criminals, then shifted focus to tracking domestic anarchists after the 1901 assassination of President William McKinley. The focus shifted again after it became the BOI to supposedly target sex trafficking, though in truth, it mostly just punished women who liked having sex. Murder had never been in its purview. The FBI had very limited jurisdiction over crimes at that time in the United States. Um, But one of the jurisdictions they had was over American Indian reservations. And so that is why this case fell to the FBI and why it became one of their first major homicide cases. The Bureau began working the case in 1923, and as Grant said... They completely bungled it. Hoover had pulled an outlaw named Blackie Thompson out of prison with the idea that he would work for the Bureau as an informant, as in he would weasel his way into the Osage community and report back as an undercover mole. And instead he slipped away and he robbed the bank and he killed the police officer. Hoover wanted to dump the case, but he couldn't afford to politically. He was only 29 at the time, he was new to the job, and he was afraid that the scandal might end it. Instead of bailing, Hoover handed over the case to a longtime agent named Tom White. White had earlier in his career worked as a Texas Ranger, and he was a rough-and-tumble lawman compared to Hoover, who wanted his agents to wear jackets and ties. But the G-men of Hoover's dreams just weren't the kinds of guys that were going to infiltrate Osage County and learn any of its secrets. White recruited a team of undercover investigators with an array of skill sets. Some posed as businessmen, some cattlemen, One was Native American, apparently the first indigenous person to serve as an FBI agent. It didn't take long for the crew to develop a theory that centered on William K. Hale. They believed he was manipulating Ernest, who, as the program Back in Time, The Osage Murders, puts it, was known around town as his weak-willed nephew. Every time someone in Molly Burkhart's family died, she inherited control of more money. Well, in theory, anyway. 
Because America's history is steeped in sexism as well as racism, it was Ernest who really controlled the money. And the feds figured that Ernest was the puppet to Hale's puppet master. Still, having a hunch is one thing. Proving it is another. Meanwhile, even with the feds paying attention, more bodies fell. Henry Grammer, who was thought to have some incriminating evidence against Hale, died June 14, 1923, in a car accident. Grammer had once been a world champion roper who consulted on a movie called Ranch Life in the Southwest. It's worth noting that I found news articles showing that Grammer himself had killed at least two men. First, a guy in a saloon fight named Leonard Holing, then a farmhand named Jim Barry. He said both kills were in self-defense and only served two years in prison for one of them. Around the same time Grammer died, George Bigheart, the ailing man I described in the opening who had called his lawyer to his deathbed, was hospitalized. He'd supposedly had business dealings with William Hale that didn't fully come to light until years later. George had inherited some 160 acres of land in Osage County, some of which he had sold to Hale, who later sold it to his wife, Marie. At least that's how Hale told it. Those who knew George described the transaction differently. They said Hale got George drunk and induced him to sign the land over. From a 1926 news story, quote, Then, while in Oklahoma City, according to the allegations, Big Heart was poisoned. It is even charged that a physician put quicklime in Big Heart's body after his death to obliterate the traces of the poison, end quote. But before George died, he had called lawyer W.W. Vaughn, who traveled to the hospital and gathered enough evidence to prompt him to call the sheriff and say, hey, I've got the goods for you to finally arrest someone. But Vaughn, of course, never made it back to Pahuska with the evidence. I mean, in hindsight, it's kind of amazing to me that Vaughn's death wasn't a more pronounced turning point. And cynically, I say that because he's a white victim. But it's actually more than that. He was a well-respected attorney and family man, father to 10, no less. This was a guy who served as a county attorney, who was asked to teach sheriffs and other county attorneys about the law and criminal investigations. Even with such a high-profile victim, the federal investigation was still coming up empty. From a documentary. The locals weren't talking. Hale had threatened or paid off many of them. But the feds didn't give up. White was the face of the investigation. Everyone knew he was with the feds. But the rest of the agents were undercover, still living in Osage County like regular Joes, and they were gathering bits and pieces of information that White would then flesh out. And the work was slow going, but going nonetheless. In 1925, Molly Burkhart started getting sick, and there was a renewed sense of urgency to close the case. She was the last in her family and worth an absolute fortune. The feds got more aggressive. Following their hunch, they put pressure on Ernest Burkhart especially, and he cracked. So did his brother, Brian. The story they told was of a vast criminal conspiracy years in the making. This is one of the worst racial injustices and criminal conspiracies in American history. Hale had arranged the slayings of some two dozen Osage. He'd encouraged Ernest Burkhart to marry Molly Kyle, and then he and Ernest and Brian and others systematically killed off members of Molly's family, plus people who might know something about that system. Henry Grammer, for example, had apparently solicited hitmen on Hale's behalf, 
So his car accident had been orchestrated to keep him quiet. The level of commitment to this conspiracy was unbelievable. Ernest had not only been married to Molly for eight years, he'd fathered two children with her. These murder schemes were essentially inheritance schemes. And it's one of the things that made these crimes so deeply sinister. They involved these intimate levels of betrayal. They involved people marrying into families, having sometimes children with an Osage, while systematically plotting to murder them, and sometimes their children as well, so that they could then inherit those head rights. The feds also learned what happened to Anna Brown, the sister whose death finally drew some attention. After leaving her sister Molly's house, Anna had gotten in a car with Brian Burkhart, who had offered to drive her home. But instead, he'd gotten her further drunk and, alongside a man named Kelsey Morrison, lured her to a canyon that would become her murder site. Morrison's wife at the time saw Anna Brown in a car with the two men. Soon after, a bootlegger named Matt Williams, who had come to the canyon to deliver whiskey, heard a woman scream, followed by a gunshot. He then saw Kelsey Morrison and Brian Burkhart walk from the direction of the scream. They said they'd just laid out an Indian woman. Neither Morrison's wife nor Williams came forward until years later, because both assumed they would be killed if they did. All the slayings went something like Anna's, though with a rotating cast of killers. In Henry Rowan's case, the direct killers were Hale and a man named John Ramsey, a Fairfax cowboy and farmer. Hale made a crucial error when he filed the lawsuit to get Rowan's $25,000 life insurance policy. Once Ramsey and Hale were charged, they fought to keep the case in state court. They figured those judges would be easier to bribe. But their efforts failed. They stood trial together. The jury couldn't reach a verdict after the first trial, but the men were convicted when tried again. Then that was set aside. Long story short, come 1929, Ernest Burkhart flipped on his uncle, securing convictions for Hale and Ramsey. All three men were sentenced to life in prison, though none remained behind bars nearly as long as that. Hale and Ramsey managed to get paroled in 1947, having served less than 20 years. Hale died a free man in 1962. His nephew, the one who had testified against him in a plea deal, actually spent way more time behind bars. Ernest was released in 1959. The Oklahoma governor inexplicably pardoned him in 1966. Even more surprising though, this was the only case to go to trial. Among the many names of other possible victims outlined in various newspapers of the day were Alfred McKinley, Joe Bates, Ray Bunch, Gilbert Cox, Dan Dugan, Bill Fletcher and his whole family. Then you have Molly's family, her mother, three sisters and brother-in-law. No one was charged. As late as 1926, people connected to the case were still dying. In December of that year, Luther Bishop, an Oklahoma state agent who'd been loaned to the feds for the Osage case, was shot to death while sleeping in his home. A report described him as, quote, instrumental in assembling evidence upon which W.K. Hale and John Ramsey were convicted in federal court here recently of the murder of Henry Rowan, end quote. No one was ever charged in that death either. Brian Burkhart, 
and Kelsey Morrison, Anna Brown's killers, walk scot-free. After Hale's conviction, the mysterious deaths stopped, but the trauma endured by the families of his victims still reverberates. Tara Damron again. It is still such a personal, horrible story because we still have so many murders that were unsolved, so many suspicious deaths. Our head rights have been taken from us. Our land has been taken from us. Um, and, and these people, these murderers, you know, they, they get royalty checks every quarter. Eventually, the federal government did change a law that helped protect the Osage people. They made it so that only Osage could inherit head rights. If you were, say, a white husband, you had no claim. Thus, throwing a wrench in your plans to marry, create a life with, and then murder an innocent person you had tricked into falling in love with you. Aren't people grand? This marks the end of season one of Crimes of the Centuries. I'm taking a short break to work on season four of my firstborn podcast, Accused, and maybe even read a book or two that's not about murder. Season two will return with new episodes on January 10th, 2022. Many of the upcoming cases have been suggested by you, our listeners, and thank you so much. To research the Osage story, I revisited David Grant's book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI, which I'd read a few years ago and which fellow podcaster Maggie Freeling told me is her favorite book. I suspect Gran would have agreed to an interview, but he had had such an extensive book tour that I pulled from speeches and interviews he'd already given, which gave me more time to read firsthand the newspaper coverage at the time, which was wild. If you have the chance, I highly recommend it. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 